I want to begin with a story. A few years ago, I was driving from St. Louis to Des Moines and listening to a podcast, I heard Father Greg Boyle, who is a Jesuit priest who works with gang members in Los Angeles. And during this interview, he said that he had read somewhere that the original language of the Beatitudes was not blessed are, are happy are, as we sometimes read in scripture, but that a more precise translation is, you're in the right place if. Now, I'm not a scripture scholar. I can't verify whether that is true or not, but I like the idea. And I went home, or I, later that night, I got out my Bible and I, I got the Beatitudes out, and I began to think about them in this, these terms. That the Beatitudes are not a spirituality, but rather a geography. The Beatitudes tell us where to stand. And so I rewrote them, because that's what writers do sometimes. We take good ideas and make them different. And I want to begin tonight by just reading you these Beatitudes. And I want you to ask yourself as we begin tonight, what is God saying to me? What does God want me to stand for? Where does God want me to stand? Because there is a place for all of us, and it won't be the same for any of us. You're in the right place if you can stand and embrace your poverty and that of others, for one day you will stand very close to God. Maybe you're already standing there. You're in the right place if you can stand before coffins and graves and cry, weeping for those now beyond your sight, for you will feel the arm of God around your shoulders. You're in the right place if you can stand behind and beneath others and let them go first and receive the best of everything, for you will have much coming to you. You're in the right place if you hunger and thirst for what is right, if justice brings you alive and injustice brings you to action, for you someday will be satisfied. You're in the right place if you speak words of mercy instead of aggression and accusation, for mercy will find its way back to you and make its home in you. You're in the right place if your words and actions are pure love, for then you will see yourself in God's reflection. You're in the right place if you can make and embrace peace with those around you, no matter their faults and their addictions and their histories and their origins and their leanings, for then you are accepting your given place as a child of God. You're in the right place if you're ruffling a few feathers, if you're hated for your hatred of injustice and your acceptance of the little, the weak, and the oppressed, for you will find yourself sitting in the lap of God. So I'd like to spend some time tonight talking about where we stand and talking about what do we do 
with this discipline of Lent that we've been going through? What do we do with our fasting and our times of extra prayer? What's it all for? Does it make us stronger in our faith? Certainly it does. Does it draw us closer to God? Surely. But what more? What next? St. Paul writes in Philippians 2, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any solace in love, any participation in the Spirit, any compassion and mercy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, the same love, united in heart, thinking one thing. Do nothing out of selfishness or vainglory. Rather, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking not for his own interests, but for those of others. So why do we need to bother with others? Why isn't it enough to just worry about our relationship with God and with a few other close people in our lives? Why do we need to pull ourselves away from quiet times of prayer, like the beautiful devotion to the stations that we just experienced together, but why do we have to pull ourselves away from that and head out into the world? Why is there a need to move from prayer and contemplation to action, to being aware of God, not just in the chapel or in the altar or in your favorite prayer spot, but also at work and in the grocery store, at parish and school meetings? Why can't we just sit in faith instead of having to stand and walk in it? And you know the answer as well as I do. It's because we are not called to be alone. We are not called to be solo Christians, singular people of faith concerned only with going to Mass and our moments of personal prayer, as important and as essential as those things are to us. We are called to be more than enlightened individuals. We are called to be light in our communities, to be in service to one another. We are called to be in communion with God, but also in communion with others. This is what makes us church. This is why it's really not okay to stay home on Sunday and spend some quiet time. Read the readings ourselves. We are not meant to be alone, and because of that, we have to show up not only for God, but for one another so that we can become church together. God calls us to lives of action and interaction, to lives that allow others to see an inmost calm at work in us and wonder where, they got, where we got that and how they might get a little piece of that. As you heard in the introduction, it's 10 years ago now, um, I was diagnosed with and treated for this rare blood disease. And when I was first diagnosed, I had no idea, of course, how it would turn out. It seemed to me that my doctors knew uh, just this much more about my disease than I did. They had to go out and figure out how to treat it. So I made a decision soon after I was diagnosed 
But before I knew the prognosis, I decided that I would do my best, no matter what happened, to show my faith, the same faith that I had been talking about and writing about and singing about for so many years. I wanted to make sure that it would, that faith would be real and alive and burning in, in me, and people would see that and want what I had. I never wanted them to doubt their own faith or their own journey toward God because of something they heard me say or something that I did, even during my most difficult times. And I can't say, and I'm certainly not here to say, that I was always successful at that. I had my good days and I had my bad days. I had days when faith didn't seem to make sense, and others when try as I might, I was just not a very good example of Jesus and his call to love. But I tried, and I tried to figure out during that time what it was that God was doing in me. What was God asking me to be and to build during those three years? So I have a favorite movie, and I've, I've found over the years that people either really like this movie or they don't. So if you don't like this movie, I'm sorry, but I won't spend a lot of time on it. One of my all-time favorite movies is Field of Dreams. And you, you probably know enough about that movie to know it begins with Ray, the main character, walking through his field of corn in Iowa. And he hears a voice, and the voice says, If you build it, he will come. And he doesn't know what that means. But the voice says it again. If you build it, he will come. He doesn't know what it means. So he goes in to have dinner with his wife and his daughter, and he tells his wife what he heard. She says, what did the voice say again? He says, the voice said, if you build it, he will come. And she says, if you build what, who will come? And Ray says, he didn't say. And she said, I hate it when that happens. And I have come to really like this idea. Consider this. What if God is asking us to build something? How do we answer the question, if, if we build what, who will come? What is God asking us to build right now? The answer will be different for each of us. And just like the movie, this voice this God who we love and we worship and adore is sometimes not very clear and not overly instructive. Sometimes we just know we had to go do something. But figuring this out, that is the work, that is the job of our lives. This is what we live for. We live to discern God's will and God's call to us. In the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola, we are told that everything we do, every person we meet, every experience we have is there for one reason, to help us become the person that God wants us to be. And that means to draw closer to God. 
and to learn to love more fully because of that. This is what God is building in us. He is building the perfect us in us if we will only let him. He wants to make us holy and perfect. And for most of us, that is a long, perhaps a lifelong road. But it is the only road worth walking. It is a road and a life that leads us back to God. And just as important, if we live it correctly, it is a life that will lead others to God. So here are our questions for tonight. What am I created to do and be? What is my calling? Where am I standing? And we need to remember this. We are always standing somewhere. We are always building something. We are always pointing the way towards something. The question is, are we building for God? Are we pointing the way toward God for others? Are we pointing them off in a, in a bad direction? We are called to be far and with others because we are so inextricably linked to them in a most profound and real way, although we don't always stop to realize it. Mother Teresa once said that the problem with the world is that we have forgotten that we belong to one another. Thomas Merton once wrote about an insight he had standing on a corner of 4th and Walnut in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, not far from his monastery. This is what he wrote. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, the sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being a man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. And if only everyone could realize this, he wrote, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. And this, I think, is our call in the world, to see others for the beloved children of God they are. And maybe especially when they don't look like us, when they don't believe exactly as we believe, when they have different political views. We can disagree, we can even correct, but we can never stop loving. If we live our lives with this kind of love and these kind of expectations for ourselves, we will no doubt see others walking around shining like the sun. And we will love them because we know that God loves them. It's why Jesus tells us to love the least of these, because that's where he is. That's where we will most readily find him. Serving others is more than charity. It's more than good works. 
It's our chance to meet Jesus face to face. So where we stand, who we recognize and respond to, where we find God, these are all the foundations of a life in Christ that may very well propel us toward having a plan for our lives that is in sync with God's plan for our lives. But there's an old Jewish expression about plans. People make plans and God laughs. And to be sure, there's nothing inherently wrong with making plans. I am a list maker and a plan planner and an organizer, and I know that not much would get done in my day if I didn't plan it. I wouldn't be here tonight without the careful planning on the part of the parish and the part of the folks from St. Joseph Radio. And where would we be without physicians and researchers and nurses, without police officers and military, without teachers and priests and political leaders, and all those who have set goals and plans for their lives and live them out every day so that I can have a better and a longer life? Goals are good and planning is essential for most things. But there's more to making plans than scheduling meetings and writing down our hopes and dreams in a big plan for success workbook. Ray, back in Field of Dreams, had a plan for building his field of dreams. He was gonna plow up his corn, much to the chagrin of all his neighbors and the other farmers who thought he was crazy, and he was gonna build a baseball field. That's what he figured out it meant. But along the way, he heard this voice again, and that led him on a side road trip to track down an old rider and the ghost of an old baseball player. He had to listen to that voice. The folly of human plans and the reason that God laughs at them, as that saying said, is that we so often leave God out of them. Even if we call ourselves followers of Christ, we sometimes think we can accomplish our goals in life through our own strength and through our own creativity, our own persistence, our own intelligence. We may remember to stop and thank God once we succeed. We can point to heaven when we hit a home run or score a touchdown. But often we're all too willing to accept the awards and recognition for our accomplishments without giving a glance to God. It's only human, I guess, to do such things, but the problem is we are more than human beings. We are children of God. And I think God laughs at us and our silly human plans, not out of spite or power, but out of a divine parental knowledge that He is God and knows what is best for us better than we do. It's like the five-year-old who screams, I want ice cream for breakfast, and I want it now. And a good parent will not give in to such tirades, but he or she may also go around the corner and snicker a little bit at this child wanting ice cream for breakfast because the request is so predictable and yet so absurd as sometimes our own plans become ice cream for breakfast indeed as christians we need to draw god into our plans 
and make sure they are part of His plan for our lives. I read recently that it's important, and I don't remember where I read this, but it stuck in my mind. It's important to remember that we are not just working for God, but that we are actually doing God's work. We need to pray for God's will and guidance, not just present Him with a business plan for our success and ask Him to sign off on it. Here's my plan. Please approve it. God is not our fairy godfather, nor is He a source of funding for our latest scheme or idea. As we bring God into our plans, our deepest desire should not be for success as we define it, but rather that God's will will be done in our lives. That's the promise of a relationship with God and Jesus. We are not promised health. We are not promised success or wealth or getting our own way. We are not promised ice cream for breakfast. So how do we know we are responding to the right call or living for the right purpose? How do we know our plan is God's plan? I want to spend some, a little bit of time talking about this idea of call and purpose. And some of you might, ra- might ask, I'm looking around the room here, and uh, let's just say we're an older crowd, aren't we? Okay. Some of you might ask, might ask, why should I worry about my calling, my purpose, at this stage in my life? Haven't I already lived that part of my life? Haven't I already responded to that call? Wasn't I a parent, grandparent? Wasn't I a husband or a wife or a committed single person? Wasn't I a priest? I've already had my professional career. I've already had my vocation. But the truth is that our call never ends. And sometimes our call changes. And I want to challenge you tonight to think about this and to pray this. To ask God, what's next? There should always be a next and a more for us. What did God create me to be right now? What is God creating me to be right now? He is not done with any of us. And let's talk for a minute about the future. For some of us, that can be a difficult thing to contemplate, for we may not think we have as much future in front of us as we have history behind us. Here's what Henry Nouwen had to say about the future. Often, he he writes, we want to be able to see into the future. We say, how will next year be for me? Where will I be in five years or ten years? There are no answers to these questions. Mostly, we have just enough light to see the next steps. What we have to do in the coming hour or the next day. The art of living is to enjoy what we can see and not complain about what remains in the dark. When we are able to take the next step with the trust that we will have enough light for the step that follows, we can walk through life with joy 
and be surprised at how far we go. So let's rejoice in the little light we carry and not ask for the great beam that would take all the shadows away. So how do we walk into the future? How do we wake each day and spend our time? How do we spend our hours, our days, our years, our lives? I want to read one more little prayer here that I just love. and This, this prayer seems to make its way into all my talks. No matter what I talk about, I come back to this prayer, it seems. It was written by Father Pedro Arupe, who was uh, the head of the Jesuits in the mid-20th century. He's famous for this little prayer. Nothing is more practical than finding God, than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. For what you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of the bed in the morning, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love, stay in love, and it will decide everything. We need to pay attention to our lives. We need to pay attention to what makes us truly happy and find ways to do those things more often because that is where God is speaking to us. For Christians, that is the still, small, quiet voice of God urging us in the direction of His dream for our lives, not just what we think we want. For Catholics, that is the ability to get up out of bed every day and be willing to be surprised by and grateful for whatever it is God puts in our lives. For surely, that's exactly where we will find God. I want, to, um, I want to sing a song um, that I wrote a few years ago now about that, I think, and uh, gives you a break from just listening to me talk for a minute. You get to hear me uh, speak in long, longer tones. So um, let me get my guitar. Oh, I forgot my strap. All right, we'll be all right. I'm going to do my best here. It's an ordinary time On an ordinary day It's the simple things we do That take our breath away And the more we pay attention to every day that fills our eyes the more we live extraordinary lives one day I stood out by the road and beyond my fields the river flowed gold stalks shimmered in the light my soul on fire, my mind in flight. It was just one moment in the sun. 
a reckoning when day was done. A time to stand and be amazed For we spend our lives as we spend our days It's an ordinary time on an ordinary day It's the simple things we do that take our breath away and the more we pay attention to every day that fills our eyes, the more we live extraordinary lives. When we look ahead, say someday soon, when we wring our hands and count the moons, when we fret the sands in the hourglass, we can miss the days that become our past. So with the sun each day I rise, my only prayer to be surprised by the beauty that the world displays. For we spend our lives as we spend our days. It's an ordinary time on an ordinary day. It's the simple things we do that take our breath away. And the more we pay attention to every day that fills our eyes, the more we live extraordinary lives. It's an ordinary time on an ordinary day. It's the simple things we do that take our breath away. hard to hold the, hold a guitar and not have a strap. <laughs> Thank you. So during, I want to end um, or lead up to an ending here by, by getting back to Lent, this very special time that we have, a special opportunity to focus on and pay attention to one very special aspect of God in our lives, and that is the person and the life of Jesus. We do it all the time, of course. We do it every Sunday when we come to Mass. Jesus is never far from our sight. He is never far away, even if we feel that he is far away. But during Lent, we are asked to enter as fully as we can into the mystery of what happened to him during that time. And especially now, we get ready for Holy Week next week and begin to begin really to see and to feel these things that happened to him. We see him washing feet and offering the body and blood as a sacrificial meal once and for all. We begin to hear the words of Jesus as if they're being spoken to us. 
When I was going to the, through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius about five years ago, over a, a nine-month period, I found two of my worlds coming together. When I, I was raised in a uh, Protestant faith here in St. Louis, in North St. Louis, and during that time, that church was really good for me. And they taught me scripture. And they, they taught me the importance of community. And one of the things that my church did every Lent was a play of sorts where they recreated the scene from the upper room, that Jesus' Last Supper. And that recreation of the Last Supper, it was just that for me. It was a recreation. It brought it alive. It was a remembrance. It was a Bible story like I was watching, like watching it come alive. And later, when I joined the Catholic Church as a young man, I learned the meal's deeper meaning for me. Not mere remembrance, but true presence, true communion. Not just history, but full integration of my life with the life of Christ. The late Jesuit father, David Fleming, wrote a beautiful book to help people pray the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola. And he suggests in our times of quiet prayer and reflection, especially during this holy time of, of Lent and a Holy Week, he suggests that we go beyond picturing the scene and recalling the words. We are asked, he suggests, to listen to the way the words are spoken to see the expressions on the faces of those gathered. So I want to, um, I want to ask you to, to pray with me and to listen to this reflection on a, a, a story you know well from Mark's Gospel. So I'd ask you just to, to close your eyes and to imagine this. As you walk down the dusty road leading to Capernaum, you hear the rumble of voices before you even realize what is going on. A crowd is gathering, converging on the simple home of an itinerant teacher named Jesus. Some even call him a healer. Others say he is a prophet. A few have said, Maybe he's the Messiah we are hoping for. But who would be foolish enough to believe that? You push your way through the crowd to see for yourself, edging your way into the doorframe. The air smells of dried clay and cedar, and you lean back against the wood and feel it push into your back. You peer over the heads of those encircling the bearded man at the center of the small room. And quietly, and yet with a natural confidence and seeming authority, he is explaining the law and the prophets. No one moves, no one talks. He has captured their attention and their imaginations. He laughs easily and frequently, his eyes dancing in the slant of light coming in through the small windows to his right. Behind out on the road, you hear a small group of men approaching. 
urging others to move out of the way to allow them to bring Jesus, to bring to Jesus a paralyzed man they are carrying on a mat. He can heal, they say. Please let us through. But no one moves, and very few even hear them, entranced as they are with the words of Jesus. You too, you return your gaze to Jesus, forgetting about the man on the mat. What could you do after all? Give up your space at the door? Jesus' words penetrate you to the core, for they are words of love, forgiveness, and the coming of new kingdom. What is it about his words that strike you so? And suddenly you sense something moving above you, the ceiling shifting and coming alive, straw and dirt falling from above and onto those standing in the room. Dirt gets into your eyes as you glance up, but you blink it back and you duck your head. As the dirt settles silently on the floor, you look up again and see a large hole in the roof. Through the hole emerges the paralyzed man on the mat, suspended in midair, being lowered and carefully with ropes to the ground in front of Jesus. You watch Jesus, wondering how he will respond. How dare they, you think, destroy his roof and trespass into his house? Jesus looks down at the man and then looks up again, surveying the entire room. He scans the room and stops as he looks at you, his eyes piercing yours. Jesus beholding you, standing scared in the doorway as you are. He smiles, a small recognition perhaps of your thoughts. But tears are in his eyes, not anger. He looks back down at the paralyzed man and raises his hand. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. There are no sounds in the room. I see the eyes of the elders and teachers glancing back and forth, silently asking each other, who is this person? How dare he forgive sins? Jesus looks up, smiling, and seemingly knowing their hearts and their unspoken words. Which is easier, he asks, to say, I forgive you, or get up and walk? Silence again. No one dares to speak or counter his argument. Very well, he says, take up your mat and go home. The man stirs on his mat. First one leg moves, then the other. People gasp and move to get a better view. His torso rises from the floor and slowly he stands. He looks at Jesus and then around the room. Tears stream down his face. He walks. For the first time in many years, he puts one foot in front of the other, able to move without assistance. He cannot speak, cannot possibly find the words. He kneels down and picks up his mat, able to care for himself for once. 
and begins to slowly walk toward the door. People reach out to touch him as to ensure themselves that what they have seen is real. He enters the doorway and stumbles on the threshold. He falls into your arms. You lift him gently back to his full height, and he looks you in the eye and speaks. This one, he says, is the one. Follow him. Do whatever he asks. This is God walking among us. As we close our time together tonight, let's just spend one more minute or so in silence. As we consider what it means to be the beloved of God, as we consider whether or not we are standing in the right place, as we consider that we are asked to look for and find God in the everyday and small details of our lives, as we consider that the passion and death of Jesus is not merely a moment in history, but rather an ongoing commingling of our life with the life of Christ, as we consider that we are being asked to build something for God and his kingdom, 